Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's go back to Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. And we are uh, finished now with that great section in the discipleship words of Jesus in verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We had a great study in that section, which just sort of took some time, camped out on that verse and really took a look at what it means to live on a daily basis more for Christ and less for ourselves each day as we're conformed to his image. This whole next section, uh, as, we, as we come to verse 28 and following, is really a, a monumental time in the lives of the disciples. Because if you remember, Jesus had just told them when they had made their great confession, and Peter was the spokesperson, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When he made that confession, Jesus said, look, the timing for my arrest and all of that is not now, so I don't want you to say anything about me being the Messiah up here in the Galilean region just yet. I'm headed to Jerusalem, and when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to have to suffer many things at the hands of my own people, the chief priests and the leaders of Israel, elders and scribes, and I'm going to be killed and be raised up on the third day. This was what he was saying to his disciples. I'm headed to Jerusalem, and there's going to be suffering. Furthermore, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to suffer. And the kind of faithfulness that you've got to demonstrate is verse 26, if You're ashamed of me in my words. The Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. These are strong words to the disciples. And it would have, of course, been a struggle for them, like it is for any of us, to not default back into our own notions of things, self-preservation, self-protection, even conjuring up our own way to deal with our problems and difficulties to come. What you have here is a, a discussion on the part of Jesus about what is to happen, and he puts it to them, if you want to follow me, then you can't bail on this whole task. You can't bail on the redemptive process. You can't bail on being my disciple. You are to believe my words, follow my words, even if it costs you everything. Last summer I taught in a conference in New Zealand and they they simply called the conference Believe the Truth. I loved that because it it seems to me that ought to really be the the byphrase of this next year. We ought to just admonish one another constantly to believe the truth. Just believe the truth. Where is the truth found? It's found in Jesus Christ as he will demonstrate. Who is the source of truth? Jesus alone, not Jesus your own notions, not philosophy, psychology, not your own human earthly thinking, not intelligence. Jesus Christ is the source of truth. I loved the name of that conference. It was straightforward, though concise, and it was flooded with significance. To say to someone, believe the truth, listen only to Christ, listen only to his word, is to affirm the truth itself exists and that it's absolute and can benefit you if you will believe it. We live in a culture where absolute truth is abandoned as an idea or even a worthy pursuit. It used to be that civilized cultures assumed that a set of truths 
could be found that were universal for everyone, and if you pursued them and found them, then everyone could live by them and they would be true for everyone and benefit everyone. You could live in harmony, blessing. Some might have disagreed over what the source of that truth might be, but nonetheless, it was assumed that you could find them. They were worth pursuing, this set of universal truths. Today's culture has abandoned that idea altogether. Today's culture has denied the idea that there is any truth to believe other than what bubbles up inside of you, in your own mind. We no longer accept the idea of a foundational set of truths that are universal. It was an arrogant and half-cynical question that Pontius Pilate posed to Jesus when he said, what is truth? Who cares? You can't even tell me what truth is. It's a myth to people today that there's some absolute truth that exists. And so we say, as Christians, believe the truth because we assume that an absolute set of truths exists. It's worthy of pursuing, and there's only one source of it, Jesus. I loved the idea of that statement, believe the truth, because it also emphatically sets forth that there's only one source rather than just your notion of truth. It's not a convention of the elite who make philosophical judgments and decide that truth exists and then by consensus come up with a a group of truths. I love the fact that when we say believe the truth, we are setting it apart. It's exclusive. It has one source and everything else outside of it is not truth. It's the only exclusive truth found in the only source of truth. And if it's absolute and if it's binding, then we're also saying it is authoritative. Believe it because it's authoritative. Believe it because you're going to be held accountable to it. Binding truth does not come from within the individual. It doesn't bubble up in your own mind. That is where the culture is heading. We must reject the idea. I read to you months ago a paragraph from David Wells' book, God in the Whirlwind. It bears repeating. Listen to this. He said, let me begin with the baseline truth of Scripture. It is that God stands before us. He summons us to come out of ourselves and know Him. Our culture is pushing us into exactly the opposite pattern. Our culture says we must go into ourselves to know God That is why we must come back to our first principles, well said, that God is there and that he is objective to us. He's not there to conform to us, we conform to him. He summons us from outside of ourselves to know him. We don't go inside of ourselves to find him, we are summoned to know him only on his terms. We're here to know him as he is, not as we want him to be. He comes from outside of our circumstances. He's not limited by our subjectivity. He's free to break in upon us, making us his own, and incorporate us into his great redemptive plans, end quote. So if absolute binding truth comes from within the individual, then really life is just about trying to show why you ought to promote your truth rather than someone else's truth. When we come to this text, what we have here is Jesus Christ preparing his disciples for their work, their linkage, their connection to him as the only source of truth. 
He makes them the eyewitnesses. And then having made them the eyewitnesses, then gives them revelation to the rest of us. So the linkage goes from God who reveals to the Son of God who is the full explanation of the Father, passed to the apostles who were eyewitnesses of his glory, and then by his Spirit, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, he inspires them then to write revelation for the rest of us. This is absolutely critical in terms of the timing in which this happens because they've just been told, if you follow me, you're going to suffer. And I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and the implication in their minds was, they're going to die. He said in verse 21, tell no one. Verse 22, the Son of Man must be killed. Verse 23, you must take up your cross, and you're going to lose your life. So rushing through their minds and their hearts is a bewilderment and a fear. They're bewildered because they can't conceive of a Messiah that would suffer and die, let alone at the hands of his own people. That's why at the same time Jesus spoke these things, you remember Matthew records that Peter pulled him aside. Peter pulled Jesus aside and said, no, 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 no. You're not going to suffer. As long as I'm here by your side, you're not going to suffer. That shall not happen, Peter said. And He rebuked Jesus, and Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's plan, but on man's. Something's bubbling up inside of you, Peter. Your own interpretation of events, your own desires, your own self-preservation, that's what you're after. Man, they needed, they needed revelation and they'd already had so much of it, but they, they'd seen Jesus perform miracles, they'd seen his power, but he still had his humanity fully, uh, he was fully enwrapped in his humanity, and his glory had not yet been manifested out through it. There wasn't a revelation of the actual person of Jesus Christ. He had certainly displayed power, he'd certainly had the, disp- the spirit descend and stay on him, He'd certainly manifested power over demons, over death, over disease, over nature, and over all knowledge. But they they were about to have a revelation of the person of Christ himself. And it would become cement around their beliefs. So that when they preached the Messiah, it would be an unshakable conviction that they, the three of them had, and then as authors of Scripture, they would pass their eyewitness testimony to us. It is absolutely thrilling. And we're going to do it this week and next week, because next week we're going to look at the Second Peter 1 account where Peter mentions this very thing. So they can't conceive of a Messiah that's going to suffer. They're terrified by that. They're also afraid that if Jesus ends up dead, where are they going to go to complete the conquest? How are they going to be persevering? How are they going to stay faithful without being ashamed when their master comes in his glory? Is there a plan for their strengthening? Well, God has a plan. It would be a visible face-to-face of his person, his character. It would be a vision that they would be forbidden to discuss with anyone else until the right time. And it would become the indestructible foundation for their eyewitness testimony. And therefore for us becomes an unbreakable link between what they saw and what's been revealed to us in Scripture by them. 
follow along as I read, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Some eight days after these things, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. We can stop right there. What we have here now is Jesus about a week after he makes these statements about his suffering, he takes Peter, James, and John to an unspecified mountain and he reveals to them his person. The first thing you have here is the promise of this revelation and it is a stirring promise. This would have stirred up in them confidence. This would have begun to strengthen their faith. This would have been a tremendous thing to recall when they actually went to the mountain and this event happened. To remember that verse 27 was spoken. Jesus had promised that there are some of those standing here who will not die, or taste death is just the the term for experience death, until they see the kingdom of God. We'll talk in a moment about whether or not this transfiguration is that event or the beginning of that event or not that event at all. But what you have here is a faith-stirring revelation promised to these men. We note, first of all, it was only for a chosen group. It was only for a chosen group. There are some standing here. Some of those standing here. It is also going to be an open view, for eyewitness testimony's sake, of God's kingdom. Or at least the kingdom of God in the expression of its power. It is going to be an open view of God's kingdom. Matthew's gospel in chapter 16, verse 28 says, They will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom or having come in his kingdom. These are phrases, both Matthew and Mark's phrases. They are phrases that indicate that there's a present sort of involvement that has already inaugurated and then an unspecified dynamic with regard to what's spoken of here about the kingdom of God an unspecified time, place, dynamic, only that the effects of it are glorious. They're going to see whatever it is this dynamic is, this small group. Now remember, Jesus had been talking about 
them losing their life for him. He'd been warning them of the suffering to come. And here he promises an intimate few that, he would not, that they would not die until they were eyewitnesses to his kingdom presence or the glory and expression of the glory of his kingdom. Now, some have become confused about verse 27, and I don't think we need to be that confused about it. First of all, because you can't be dogmatic about it. There's nothing in verse 27 that specifically states the timeline or the time frame that Jesus is referring to when he says there are some here who won't taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There's nothing clear about a timeline, so it's pointless to be uh, trying to search for views and becoming dogmatic about what the time frame is that we're dealing with. First of all, people have said that he was promising that some of them here wouldn't die until his appearing or his second coming. And so they conclude that Jesus was obviously wrong because here we are, liberal theologians do this all the time, here we are and there are no first century disciples still living. But if you think about it, he can't mean his second coming because he references that you'll You'll not die until then. Well, that would imply that you'll die after his coming. So if this is his second coming, why would his disciples die after his second coming? That's his second coming. You live. You live forever. So it doesn't seem to make much sense to to even haggle about that being the view. Now, it might include some final glory wrapped up in the statement kingdom of God, but you can't make it exclusively about his second coming, seems to me. Some have said this is sort of the the destruction of Jerusalem, where in 70 AD, Titus Vespasian comes in, and in in accordance with the prophecies given, and that Jesus had said he would judge his people for their unbelief, it had been prophesied that they would be judged. Uh, Some have said this is really just Jesus referencing that some of his disciples will be alive when 70 AD occurs and the destruction of Jerusalem comes. Well, that may be a, a viable option, but... Again, you can't be dogmatic about it. Furthermore, the kingdom of God is not a phrase exclusively related to the judgment of Israel for their unbelief. It is not exclusively related to that. In fact, in the coming of Christ, the kingdom power of Christ, Jews do get saved. They are being saved, as Paul makes mention of in Romans. And in the end, when the, Gentile, the time of Gentile salvations has ended, there's going to be an entire ingathering of Israel. So when Jesus mentions the kingdom of God, I don't think he's highlighting one specific judgment upon the nation of Israel. Others would say he just meant this experience because it's so closely connected. And I think there's some legitimacy to that. I don't think it just includes the transfiguration moment on the mountain. But some will say he only meant that some of these wouldn't die until they'd seen this vision. Remember, this vision is only six days later, according to Matthew and Mark, in the specified time. So others have come along and said, well, that makes no sense. Why would he tell people, hey, you're not going to die until next week, until after next week? There was no imminent threat of death then, it seems to them. Now, that's true, but the text doesn't give us a time frame once again, so you can't even be dogmatic about that. So let's just sort sort of summarize what we do know. Jesus had spoken about not being ashamed of him at his coming in power and glory, verse 26. Clearly, there's an aspect of his kingdom and the glory of it that's present while Jesus is on the earth and has an ongoing expression in his display, in his death, his exaltation, his being at the right hand of the Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the spread of the gospel in the church, and his second coming. All of it is a package deal. 
all of it is the expression of kingdom power. So he'd spoken of not being ashamed of him at his ultimate coming in power and glory and tells them to follow him now and persevere in that. We know that, at least. We also know that he told his disciples that he must suffer many things and that they should be willing to do the same. And he did take a few of them to this unspecified place, this mountain, and each of them saw with their own eyes, all three of them, this brief sort of mind-blowing manifestation of the glory and the splendor of the Son of God. They all saw it. And we also know that Peter and James and John did live for a while and went on to experience the ongoing power and glory of the spread of the gospel before they all died. That's what we know. So since verse 27 doesn't make it dogmatically clear, here's, here's where I would lean. I would lean that this experience on the mountain is the initial fulfillment, if you will, of Jesus' promise to a few of the disciples, all of whom went on to experience gospel power, but not all of them went on to write scripture. And this becomes a crucial eyewitness testimony for these three so that as Peter says later in 2 Peter 1, and John says in 1 John 1, what they saw and what their hands handled, they make known to you. And of course, then tomorrow, or next, uh, two Lord's Days from now, no, next Lord's Day we can actually accomplish it. 2 Peter 1 will illustrate why it is that the written revelation is even a level of certainty beyond the experience of these three. Absolutely amazing. But 1 John 1, if you look at it, here's John the Apostle writing 1 John 1. Very, very important statement that he makes. When he opens up his first epistle, he says, verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, and what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, that is to say it was revealed, And we've seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And then verse 5, this is the message we heard from him and announce it to you, that God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. How did they know God was light? Well, they'd heard him preach it. They'd seen his power. They'd, heard, they'd seen the Holy Spirit descend upon him. They knew that that had happened. Now on the mountain, they're going to see the Son of God in his person. That he is indeed unapproachable light. And in him there is no darkness at all. That's the issue. And for John, that was a manifestation of truth. Pure truth, the source of truth, because he says that in verse 6. If you say you have fellowship with him and you, you do not walk, but you walk in darkness, you lie and you do not walk in the truth. Light was all about truth. This experience stirred John and James and Peter. It fortified their faith. It strengthened their resolve to preach and write. And here's the most important thing. It galvanized all of their disciples for the ongoing work of gospel outreach because it became the anchoring link of their eyewitness testimony 
with the revelation of Scripture for the rest of us, which Peter makes clear in 2 Peter 1. This is what we made clear to you. Remember what he said in 2 Peter 1, verse 16? We didn't follow cleverly devised tales. These weren't notions that bubbled up in our own mind. Sometimes people will say to you, well, that's your interpretation. You need to take them right to 2 Peter 1. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Scripture came from God, breathed out by God, as we'll study extensively next week. And in having been breathed out by God, when you read it in its context, by faith, it is going to be clear. It is, its teaching and its truth and its truth claims are going to unfold for the heart and the mind of true believers. It isn't a matter of what bubbled up into some person's mind. It isn't an interpretation of an experience on a mountain. It is God-breathed. Where did it come from? Jesus Christ. How did they know he was the source of it? Here it is. They had a stirring revelation promised to them, and it led then to this glorious preview. Notice verse 28, a radiant glory previewed. Verse 28, some eight days after these things. Jesus took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. By the way, uh, Matthew says six days, Mark says six days, because they're pinpointing the exact number of days. Luke says some eight days. It's really a phrase that could be translated about a week. Um, Some have sort of haggled over this, see, another contradiction. It's not a contradiction. All Luke did, notice, notice what the text says. It says that, some eight days after these sayings. So Luke just included a day of teachings and the day this happened on the mountain, packed it all together and said, some eight days later. Mark and Matthew wanted to pinpoint six days. Six days from the moment they were counting. Say, why would they want to do that? Whereas Luke could be rather free with it. Well, it's just not explained in Scripture. It's just that it's precise in Mark and Matthew. There isn't this ambiguous term like Luke uses. Some have suggested this might be a reference back to imagery with Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses is about to appear in the vision. He's about to appear on the mountain. Well, in Exodus 24, verse 16, you have similar terminology. And some have suggested Matthew and Mark wanted the reader to note that. Hey, remember this. There was a glory cloud on Mount Sinai. Moses was in that glory cloud six days, and he was there getting the revelation for God's people. Exactly six days later from the time Jesus said, some of you will see the kingdom of God, he took us up to the mountain, there was a glory cloud, and there was revelation. And Moses was there. Some would suggest that's a very clear link to that experience. So what happened? Well, verse 29, while Jesus was praying the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. there's There's just no human way to describe this except to say at its very basic level, it is not of earthly origins. Notice two things that are happening. His face and his clothing are transformed. We, we sometimes see in our translations the word transfiguration. The Greek word here is the word from which we get metamorphosis. A metamorphosis happened. 
You say, well, couldn't this have been just in the subjective illusion of the minds of these three? No, because the language used by all three writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the language for the word became, his face became different, his clothes became different. It is a tense of the verb that indicates actual events that have happened. Actual circumstances have taken place. A factual event So this isn't an illusion in their mind. This isn't subjective. This isn't bubbling up within human beings. Jesus' face and his clothing became different, listen, than normal human experience. Every day they'd walked with him, he had clothes on. Every day they'd walked with him, he had skin on his face. He is human. He is fully man. But in this moment, God peeled back that which was earthly and human to show the inside, his inner person, His deity, his divine nature. Notice the language here, verse 29. White and gleaming. White is not merely the color here. Lucas is a strange word. It's it's used to describe a brightness. That's it. It's a brightness. We could say a bright radiance. A radiating bright white would be a good translation. And his face and his clothing were gleaming, the text says, that's, that's a verb that's very strong to indicate a flashing going on. There was this outward blazing flashing going on and it was bright white radiance coming from his physical body and his clothing, his physical face and his garments. Mark 9 indicates that you shouldn't think of something earthly like, like you might think of this bright white piece of clothing you've just cleaned you say, Mark mentions that? Yeah, Mark 9.3. He was radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That's very interesting. What is he trying to do? Is he trying to make some cheesy comparison? No. He's saying, don't think of any earthly analogy. The closest you can get, Matthew says, is his face shone like the sun. The verb here that Luke uses is a flashing, often used of lightning. Don't imagine just lightning. Don't imagine just the sun, but at least and far more than that. His skin and his clothing. Suddenly. Actual facts. Actual occurrences. This is bizarre. And the appearance of his face was different. I mean, they looked into that face. They'd looked into time and again. And suddenly it was beyond anything on earth. It was blazing. It was brilliant. It was light. Such things have always been associated with the perfections of God, His nature, even His throne, and even His word. God is always viewed in Scripture as utterly pure and holy and full of light and effulgent brightness and brilliance. And that's why when Satan wants to deceive, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says he comes as an angel of light. How's he going to deceive if he doesn't come trying to look like we instinctively know God is? 
You say, do we instinctively know it? Yes, it's embedded in the fabric of every created human being, Romans 1 says, that when you look at creation, you know there's a sovereign, pure, holy, righteous, and powerful God to whom you must answer. The reason that you do not acknowledge that apart from special revelation in the gospel is because you hate that truth by nature. So you suppress it. Shut it up. I don't want to know it. And only in the gospel and the grace of having your eyes open does that light become something you want to look at. John said it in John 3 of his gospel. He said, men love darkness because their deeds are evil and they hate the light. And when the light comes, they run from the light. God's perfections, God's nature, God's throne, his word, his sovereignty has always been associated with that which reveals truth Direction, light, purity, pure truth, pure character, pure righteousness, pure morality. Psalm 104 verse 2, light is his garment. That's what it says of God. Light is his garment. The light is at home with him, dwelling with him. So says Exodus 3 verse 2 and following. His light is associated with brightness and, and beams of bright light and blazing light. Habakkuk says in chapter 3, verse 4, the brightness is like light. He's the origin of light. From his countenance, the scriptures say, when God uses terms that give us the idea that he has a face when he's only spirit, it says that the countenance of God Almighty is the origin of all light. Psalm eighty-nine, fifteen. So light is the manifest presence of God and that's what the disciples were seeing. They were seeing God manifested in the person of Christ. Light is, is the dwelling place of God. 1 Timothy 6, 16, God dwells in unapproachable light. That's what they were seeing. An unapproachable flash of radiant brilliance. And it represented instantly in their minds that he is truth. He's the source of truth, the origin of truth. Everything he'd told them is true. Everything he'd said is true. Everything about his person is true. He's pure, righteous, holy, sovereign. And he's the only light bearer. So when he comes, he gives light. So he's the source of all truth. As God, by divine affirmation, will say in a few moments, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't listen to anything else, anyone else. Listen to him. Listen to his witnesses. Listen to his word. Remember John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't overcome it, doesn't understand it, doesn't comprehend it. In him was life and that life was the light of men. What they knew when his veil of his flesh was pulled back and they saw the light is he's the source of it. He is God himself and he is truth itself and what he says is reality. Nothing else matters than what he says. Nothing. And if I'm going to know truth and have my mind cleared up, I've got to come to Jesus Christ. Christ alone is the only revealer of truth at that level. Nature reveals truth, but we shut it out. 
We suppress it by the bent within us. We need the gospel of Christ. We need the bursting forth on our hearts of the Spirit of God to open our eyes because Christ is the reveal of truth. He is the one who brings truth. He's the source of it. You want to see your sin? Go to Christ. Go to his word. You'll see sin. Do you know what's wrong with the church today? Why it is so dumbed down? We do not know the truth, do not study the truth in depth as an evangelical movement, and therefore our view of sin gets dumbed down. Listen, when they looked into the face of the glorious light of Jesus Christ, they knew that if he's the source of truth, then he's the one that can tell them where the error is. And Jesus said, there are going to be false Christs that come to you all the time. And say, I am the Christ. Don't believe them. You believe my witnesses. You believe that they spoke from God as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. The ones who saw me on the holy mountain. It wasn't their personal experience of three men that gives you your certainty. It is the fact that I took those three men, made them my witnesses, and then by the Spirit moved upon them to write. They saw what they're describing. That's just a grace upon grace. Jesus said in John 12, 36, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. Don't walk in the darkness, verse 35 of John 12. Walk while you have the light. If you love your brother, you abide in the light, 1 John 2, 10 said. There's no harmony with darkness and light, Paul said to the Corinthians. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Ephesians 5. We sang it earlier in that great song, Show thy face and all is bright. You look into the face of Christ in his word, you are in that sense, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, looking into the glorious face of Christ. When you look into his revelation, you're looking into the glorious face of Christ just like on the mountain they looked into the glorious face of Christ revealed when his flesh was pulled back. This is, this is staggering. And it was a stirring revelation promised that was now six days later beginning to inaugurate whatever kingdom they would see, whatever kingdom power they would see from here on out before they died wasn't specified, but this was an inauguration of the kingdom. They saw it. He is it. He is the kingdom. He is the king. He's the source of truth. He's the source of light. I need go nowhere else. And if that weren't enough, there was a prophetic link proven here. Not just a radiant glory previewed, but a prophetic link proven. Notice, and behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who also appearing in glory were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is absolutely amazing. So Peter and James and John were sleeping. They were dazed. And when they became fully awake, this is what they saw. They saw Christ's face and his clothing completely metamorphosed into this blazing, flashing light. And flooding through their mind and hearts is the idea that he now, he is God. He's the source of truth. He's the only revealer of truth. He can keep us from darkness. And they notice that he's talking with two men And it was revealed to them 
It had to be revealed to them. It's not spoken. Moses and Elijah are with Christ. They don't have bodies. They don't have their glorified bodies yet. Yeah, Elijah went to heaven in a fiery chariot, but that doesn't mean he, he's there in front of God, the only one in heaven with a body from earth. He has no earthly body. He's a spirit in the presence of Christ, perfected in holiness, like every spirit is perfected in holiness in the presence of Christ, until we get our body fashioned for glory. What is this? This is Moses in physical form and Elijah in physical form. Moses was buried on the top of a mountain by God. His grave isn't found to this day. Two strange deaths, strange exits from the earth, and here they are in physical form, and God reveals it to James, James, Peter, and John that it's Moses and Elijah. I mean, this is bonus here. You say, why? Why Moses and Elijah? Moses represents the man who spoke face-to-face with God as a mediator between God and his people. He revealed God to his people as the great prophet. And so the law and the Old Testament people of God in the Old Covenant are connected to this entire redemptive plan. Elijah is that great prophet who spoke to apostate Israel and said, you don't believe, but God is still saving a remnant. So he was the prophet that spoke about this great grace to save a remnant. John the Baptist arrives, and he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The Elijah has come. Peter, James, and John knew instantly. If Moses is speaking with Christ about his heading to Jerusalem, to die for sinners and accomplish this glory? If Elijah is speaking with Christ and they're all doing it in glory, in this great glorious moment, he is the source of truth. He is the Messiah. He's the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. He's the one who would save apostate Israel. He's the one who is the source of truth for all of the gospel ministry from now till he comes again. It's an unbreakable link. It's absolutely marvelous. The sad thing is that there's also a juvenile idea proposed here. (laughs) I call it a juvenile idea. Our time is gone. We'll expand it next time, but I have to introduce it. Notice what happens here. And as the two men, that is Moses and, verse 33, as Moses and Elijah were leaving Jesus, Peter had a brilliant idea bubbled into his mind. Master, it's good for us to be here. Again, it's just a mitigated translation. What it means is this is the best place to be, the best experience of our life. And it's emphatic. It's good for us to be here. Let's make three houses. (laughs) You know, I'm reading that and I'm thinking... Why would Moses and Elijah, who've appeared from redemptive history, talking with Jesus in glory, why would they need a house? What is wrong with you, Peter? They need an earthly dwelling? Really? What, are you going to protect them from the elements? They're concerned about the weather on the mountain? Are you kidding? This This is three things, I believe, happening with Peter. One is fear. He's self preserving. He's sinfully fearful. The other is just he's always talking before he thinks. He's just mouthy. He's just ignorant. In fact, that's how Luke says it. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't have a clue what he was saying. 
And the third is stubbornness. It's mixed in there with unbelief. Why? Because now what you have is a glory cloud coming down and God saying, look, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. What did that phrase have in it? Follow him, go where he goes, do what he says. Don't bubble up your own notions. Don't look into your own heart. Don't believe in your own thinking. Don't interpret circumstances your own way. Don't decide for your own self what life should be like. From here to eternity, do nothing of your own accord. Listen to Jesus. Listen to the Son of God. There's nothing subjective about this at all. Listen to the source of truth himself. Peter, stop it. I mean, we think sometimes that when we look at circumstances and life and truth just doesn't seem to apply or circumstances just don't seem to match up or we're not really sure what God is going to do and why doesn't he give us more in terms of, you know, revelation? And what do we start doing? We start banking on our own thoughts, banking on our own wisdom, banking on our own subjective notions. The point here is Jesus Christ reveals himself so that he could send the message, I am your God, your source of truth. I am light. I'm the revealer. And he didn't just show it through the power over death and disease and all knowledge and the things they'd already seen. He did it here before the cross to show these three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to show them who he really is. Inside, intrinsically, by nature, he is God. They can follow him. They don't need to decide. It was a juvenile idea. He didn't know what he was saying. And while he was saying the juvenile thing, a frightening glory, white cloud. Not, not puffy clouds like you imagine. The text indicates language that a glory, a bright glory cloud started to surround them and they became terrified and that's out of which God then authenticated his son once again and they heard the voice. The language here is utterance in your translations, voice, the voice of the divine. This is my son, listen to him. There it is. We're to listen to him. This is his revelation, as we'll see next week. This is not to be doubted. It is not to be interpreted by your own interpretation. Next week, I'm going to challenge that notion that we can come up with our own interpretation. I'm going to challenge it next week. As we head into the new year, we ought to be saying to one another, believe the truth. Believe Christ, the only revealer, the only source of truth. This is it. And Peter will write and say, no prophecy of Scripture bubbled up into our minds. They weren't cleverly devised tales. When we were on the holy mountain, we saw that he's the source of truth. And with that in our minds, it could have been just our experience, just the three of us. But no prophecy of written Scripture ever came by us bubbling up some notion of our own. It came as the Spirit moved men to write. It's an unbreakable link, beloved. Jesus to the scriptures. You can trust it. Listen to him in his word. If you're carrying around some extra baggage today, get rid of it. Let the scriptures shatter it. Believe the truth. Believe Christ.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and this first Lord's Day of the year. Thank you that your truth is not only clarifying and revealing and penetrating and convicting, but your truth is sustaining and comforting and uplifting. Appreciate the way you challenged by your spirit our hearts and everything we believe and everything we think by your written word. Please forgive us for for not knowing enough of it or being ignorant of it or mixing it with our own notions. Please forgive us for not believing it when it speaks so clearly. May we be a people this year who believe the truth all the more and be thrilled with it. Thank you for its comforts as you've supplied them to these precious families in affliction. We do not grieve as those who have no hope, but our hope is anchored, our soul is anchored in Christ. Lord, you're the source of truth. I don't wish that I could have been there on that mountain. I don't need that. Nor did you plan that for any of us. We should not wish for a different time and place in which we live, and we should not wish for a different revelation. Your revelation is sufficient, comprehensive, authoritative, all we need for life and godliness. And so we ask you to help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. To the exclusion of all other things that, that would pretend to be truth. Pseudo-lights. Keep us focused on the light of your countenance and your glory. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.